This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Uh, as already noted, my talk today is Newman's Marian idea of history. And before I get into the weeds of what that means, I would like to set the stage first a little bit. Um, this topic grows out of a few larger projects that I'm currently working on. One of them, as already mentioned, is a special issue co-edited with Michael Hurley for uh, the journal Religion and Literature, which reassesses aspects of Newman's thought um, in light of his recent canonization, and especially uh, invited contributors to look at different areas of his thought that might not have received as much um, examination. And so hence uh, my interest in turning to the Marian influence in Newman's thought. And the more I looked at it, the more I discovered that it is um, a very informative and, and often kind of subtle um, and almost hidden influence on much of his thought, which I think is actually quite appropriate. His uh, Marian influences are also kind of Marian in character. They're slightly hidden and, and humble and yet profoundly, I would say, um, essential to his thought as a whole. Um, and particularly in terms of his understanding of history, though I do also think that um, his aesthetics was profoundly influenced by his Marian devotion as well. I'm also working on a project with Routledge on Victorian assessments of history. And I think especially in the time when there was a kind of emerging uh, discourse of power politics, it's quite interesting that Newman repeatedly turns to um, an idea of history where the most important things are always already happening offstage, very often um, uh, um, on the sidelines and, and areas of, of life and throughout uh, salvation history that people might not necessarily notice, especially if they're in places of uh, and positions of power. Um, another thing that I think is very important is if we look to Ox uh, Newman's time in Oxford, we see that this is really where his Marian turn, as it were, began. And so this is also partly why I chose this topic when I was invited to come here, because I think it's really special to examine the influence of a place when you're studying here, for instance, as students or, or teaching here or just living here. And so I wanted to bear this in mind especially because I would argue that some of his most penetrating insights into Marian dogma were actually um, present in his um, sermons that he delivered here at the University of Oxford when he was um, the priest assigned to uh, the University of Oxford's church, uh, St. Mary the Virgin. In fact, in one, and I'll, I'll turn to this sermon a little later on, but I just wanted to set the stage by highlighting how he describes Mary. He says she is the pattern of the philosophic temper in scripture. And by extension, she is an example and resource for the church throughout history and in one's own current time. She's always already relevant. Um, and I will be talking more about that later on, too. And in fact, we see in some of, uh, I would argue, we see in some of Newman's early university sermons here in Oxford, um, the germ for what would become the development of doctrine just a little later on. His growing interest in Mary helped um, motivate his, his growing interest in doctrine itself. Um, Oxford is also the place where Newman first really discovered the Blessed Virgin Mary, and I'll talk a little bit more about that as well. He had what he himself would call in the Apologia a series of different stages of conversion, um, and one of the important stages in his conversion was his turn to Mary, which really was um, prompted by his involvement with the Oxford movement um, and his growing Tractarian theology, um, which helped then pave the way to his eventual conversion to Roman Catholicism. 
Um, and Oxford itself has been a very interesting place for a growing devotion to Mary, especially if we look at the Victorian period. I'm sure some of you are familiar with the Jesuit um, poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, and some of his most exquisite poems dedicated to the Blessed Virgin Mary really are shaped by the very local, rural, uh, uh, surrounding Oxfordshire area. And um, he, of course, was uh, received into the church by John Henry Newman. And we see a lot of Victorian um, converts to Roman Catholicism um, returning to this idea of Oxford, partly because many of them felt disenfranchised or kind of separated from Oxford because obviously their conversion meant that they couldn't work at Oxford at the time and continue to stay there. Um, and so uh, the certain kind of displacement that Oxford came to represent also interestingly figured as um, a very important representation of certain elements of Marian devotion. And I'll talk about why that might be the case a little later on. Okay, so first I want to dive into some context. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the status of uh, Newman's uh, understanding of Mary as, as present generally in Newman's scholarship. And then I'm going to trace some elements of his growing conversion and how it started to shape um, his approach to doctrine, Mary, and then um, more specifically his understanding of history and what exactly history is as a phenomenon. Although Letter to Pusey, which was uh, um, published in 1864, is the only book-length work that Newman wrote ex professio on Marian dogma, his poetry, letters, personal devotions, and sermons are saturated by a Marian sensibility and sensitivity. We're approaching May, and Newman actually has a really exquisite sequence of reflections on Mary. Um, he links them, of course, to her traditional month. And I would argue they have some of his most important ideas about the relationship between God and our personal lives uh, in these meditations. And it, they're expressly shaped through his um, response to Mary and her role and influence um, uh, throughout history. It is difficult to read more than a few pages of Newman without finding a reference, whether explicit or often hidden, to Mary, the second Eve. Given this, it is crucial that approaches to Newman's thought offer a more sustained account of the place that Marian dogma plays in his understanding of the inner depth dimensions of history, as well as other topics that are um, of great importance to him. To date, treatments of Newman's idea of history have tended to focus primarily and quite understandably on his more systematic and careful treatments of ecclesial history in an essay on the development of Christian doctrine, which was first published in 1845. If Newman's Mariology is considered at all, it tends to be treated along explicitly historicist or biographical lines. Emphasis is typically placed on the degree to which Mariology did or did not aid Newman in his attempts at a kind of early ecumenism in the Victorian context. Or discussions focus on the degree to which Mary is seen as an aid to the expansion of Newman's sense of liturgical theology. Um, uh, Guy Nichols um, from the uh, Birmingham Oratory has recently published a fascinating book on Mary's influence on litur Newman's liturgical theology. Um, however, other than liturgical theology and Newman's own conversion, there's still a lot more to be said about the Marian presence in Newman's uh, thought and in his life. Perhaps one of the few exceptions to this pattern of treatment can be found in the German writings of Eric Shavara, who of course, um, has written extensively on Newman, what he called the heart of Newman. Unfortunately, um, his writings are, are not available to many English-speaking audiences because they are primarily in German and haven't been fully translated, though various scholars are working on that, so stay tuned. 
As Newman himself recounts in the Apologia and elsewhere, his time as a student at Oxford and then as an Anglican priest transformed his devotional imagination and, among other things, his outlook on history itself. Christian doctrine increasingly became for Newman the inner coherence of not only Christian faith, but the unifying force which revealed that divine grace operates analogically within and beyond the world. In Christ's church, individual persons are bound together in one body, even as they remain themselves and become ever more themselves. For Newman, this flourishing of personality is made possible through assent to reveal truths, all of which speak to, but ultimately transcend the limits of reason, and in the process transform the heart, directing the will towards the good. Prior to his arrival in Oxford, however, Newman was hesitant about the legitimacy, let alone the relations and coherences, between certain articles of faith and their attending doctrines, including Marian dogma. I'm talking about a very young Newman, like 18-year-old Newman, but he was always quite serious, so he was already thinking about things like this from that young age. Newman's earliest self-identified conversion happened in 1816, when he was just an adolescent. And he famously recounts this conversion in his Apologia. It's often quoted, but I think, especially for those of us who might not be as familiar with Newman, it's very helpful to turn to this pivotal moment, um, to, to think about it and how it relates to his deepening um, conversion. Um, and in this section of the Apologia, it's found really close to the beginning of the text. He says that the reality of God's existence first made itself known to him in the depths of his conscience when he was just 15. It isolated me, he says, from the objects which surrounded me, confirming me in my mistrust of the reality of material phenomena and making me rest in the thought of two and two only supreme and luminously self-evident beings, myself and my creator. Newman always had the sense that the heart was, first and foremost, a personal and deeply private thing, shaped through intimate exchanges with God. He suggests as much when he confesses to the pains he endured in having to air aspects of his private life in Apologia for the sake of correcting the false public accusations levied against him by Charles Kingsley in the early 1860s. In the opening of his autobiography, he gently protests public exposure, saying, Secretum meum mihi, my secret is my own. For Newman, our personal history begins with and returns to the voice of God in the conscience, in the heart. Reflecting on this, John Crosby notes that Newman saw the conscience as that which awakens us to the theocentric, then the Trinitarian, and finally to personal relationship with the triune God as fully revealed in the Jesus of history, who is also the Christ of God. The private experience of conscience was not individualistic in Newman, however, he did not share in the individualistic pro, uh, project of signature enlightenment thinkers. Thomas Fowle makes a similar point in minding the modern, comparing Samuel Taylor Coleridge with Newman and contrasting them with the individualists Descartes and Hobbes. And this is what he has to say. It's something of a lengthy quote, but it will help to set the stage for the Marian turn this paper will take shortly. Here's the quote. Coleridge's focus on personhood is ethical rather than just epistemological. His aids to reflection and opus maximum thus conceive of personhood as essentially relational. The person originates in and is subsequently sustained by his or her relation with another being, a metaphysical truth as Coleridge and following him, John Henry Newman were to argue, first made apparent by the phenomenology of human conscience. That is by an incontrovertible awareness that the sense of relatedness and obligation to the other is sanctioned by the vertical rapport however latent, tenuous, and or susceptible to misconstrual and neglect, 
that all persons have with the divine logos, end quote. Newman's approach to faith was increasingly communal, attentive to the, quote, vertical rapport between the self and God, mediated by encounters with others. He understood that we are each a link in a chain, a bond of connections between persons. You've probably seen this quote. It is often on uh, Catholic fridge magnets. <laughs> As an intimate conversation with a personal God, the conscience must, for Newman, affect action and relations between persons. Such an understanding opened to greater depths when Newman's religious opinions fully assented to specific articles of the Christian creed, most especially the doctrine of the communion of saints and certain attending Marian dogmas from the mid to late 1820s. This greater appreciation occurred as his pivotal role within the Oxford movement took greater shape and his friendship with, with John Keeble, among others, deepened. Newman saw how the spiritual life depended on conversation, encouragement, and even fraternal correction between friends. Spiritual growth, theological truth, could not occur in a, in a vacuum or as an idealist abstraction in the mind. Friendship was needed. It uniquely aids the movement from the notional, or ideal, to the real. Recalling his Oxford days, Newman said his ascent to Christian doctrine developed as he shared in a personal quote, history, common memories, an intercourse of mind with mind in the past, and a progress and increase in that intercourse in the present. We can see from this that Newman believed we could have friendship not only with the living, but those who have gone before us, especially those marked with the sign of faith. The doctrine of the communion of the saints led Newman to contend that the animating force of history is not power politics, but rather intercessory prayer and the shared pursuit for the truth, chronicled throughout time and often in unexpected ways. His writings always hold a special interest in the ways in which providence paradoxically manifests his plans for salvation history in hidden ways, in the lives of saints who live on the margins of public life. Newman's extended reflections on the value of the hidden life for history is fleshed out in many of his works, but especially in parochial and plain sermons. For instance, in the sermon called The Secretness and Suddenness of Divine Visitations, he focuses on the degree to which history is renewed and providence singularly communicated through the lives of solitary saints and prophets, through those who withdraw from public life to seek out the still voice of God in order to understand their times. It is but holy Daniel, he says, solitary among princes, or Elijah the recluse of Mount Carmel, who can foretaste the time of God's providence among the nations. As much as Newman shows his ardent affection for the saints of the church, as well as the Old Testament prophets, he makes it very clear that Mary, the mother of God, not only parallels them, she far outstrips them. Mary is like meek Moses, he says, but by virtue of her immaculate conception and by extension of her perfectly attuned conscience, she heard the word of God and faithfully kept it, pondering it in her heart. As Newman increasingly poured over the writings of the early church fathers during his Oxford days, he discovered a pervasive Marian presence in their work, a presence which would become crucial to his understanding of the conscience as well as his idea of history. We can especially discern this Marian turn in Newman's thought and devotional life in the sermons he preached before the University of Oxford between 1826 and 1843. For instance, in his sermon dedicated to the Feast of the Purification in the year 1843, Newman says the following about Mary. She is the pattern of faith, both in the reception and the study of divine truth. He sees in Luke chapter 2, verse 19, the highest praise afforded to a human being. The verse reads, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. 
It is worth pondering at some length Newman's gloss on this passage. He says that in Luke 2, we discern Mary's philosophical turn of mind, her heart's habit of attention, both of which anticipate and supersede all of the doctors of the church who are identified by the church as models of conscientious discernment of revelation in particular periods of history. And I'm going to give something of an extensive quote where he talks about some of the elements that characterize Mary as basically philosopher of philosophers. Um, this is quite important. He's drawing here, um, especially from Gregory of Nyssa and Irenaeus in thinking about Mary as the uh, greatest philosopher. Quote, but Mary's faith did not end in a mere acquiescence in divine providences and revelations. As the text, Luke 2, 19, informs us, she pondered them. When the shepherds came and told of the vision of angels, which they had seen at the time of the nativity, and how one of them announced that the infant in her arms was a savior, which is Christ the Lord, while others did but wonder, Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Again, when her son and savior had come to the age of 12 years and had left her for a while for his father's service, and had been found to her surprise in the temple amid the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions, and had, on her addressing them, vouchsafed to justify his conduct, we are told, his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And accordingly, at the marriage feast in Cana, her faith, her faith anticipated his first miracle, and she said to the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Thus, St. Mary, he says, is our pattern of faith, both in the reception and the study of divine truth. She does not think it enough to accept, she dwells upon it. Not enough to possess, she uses it. Not enough to assent, she develops it. Not enough to submit the reason, she reasons upon it. Not indeed reasoning first and believing afterwards with Zacharias, yet first believing without reasoning, next from love and reverence, reasoning after believing. And thus she symbolizes to us, he says, not only the faith of the unlearned, but of the doctors of the church also, who have to investigate and weigh and define, as well as to profess the gospel, to draw the line between truth and heresy, to anticipate or remedy the various aberrations of wrong reason, to combat pride and recklessness with their own arms, and thus to triumph over the sophist and the innovator." End quote. You can see why uh, there was standing room only when he was uh, at St. Mary the Virgin preaching. Here we see Newman's remarkable and relatively early reading of Mary as a model for human receptivity to providence in history. She models the very essence of the philosophical turn of mind. In dwelling on the word of God, in developing her initial assent to the divine plan, in reasoning upon reasoning, in believing first and then reasoning ever afterwards, Mary not only models what Newman will later call the illative sense, she embodies the very gradual, processual mode of thinking through ideas, which Newman outlines in The Development of Doctrine. This sermon is a precursor to an essay on the development of Christian doctrine, in fact. And towards the close of development, Newman dwells on Mary's status as the Queen of all Saints, who helps guide the communion of saints, the Church of Christ in history, toward her son. He observes that a special office is assigned to St. Mary, that is, special as compared with all other saints, but which, he hastens to stress, is marked off with the utmost precision from that assigned to our Lord. Thus she is said to have been the arbitress of every effect coming from God's mercy. Because she is the mother of God, the salvation of mankind is said to be given to her prayers. Merit is ascribed to Christ and prayer to St. Mary. In a word, the whole may be expressed in the words, one hope in Christ and after him, Mary. 
Elsewhere, he proposes that in the history of Our Lady, that's his term, that's his phrase, he likes that phrase, the history of Our Lady, we discern the model of human obedience to providence throughout time. She is therefore what he calls the beautiful gift of God, which outshines the fascinations of a bad world and which no one ever sought in sincerity and was disappointed. She is the personal type and representative image, he concludes, of that spiritual life and renovation in grace, without which no one shall see God. Moreover, she is humanity's special protector, who brings us forward in the narrow way if we live in the world. In his theology, as well as his, as his devotional writings, especially starting from his later Tractarian period, as I just noted, Mary is Newman's uh, key for understanding history as a dramatic account of conformity to or rebellion against the divine plan for the world's salvation, a plan which first makes itself intuited or sensed in the voice of the conscience, which Newman, of course, called the Aboriginal Vicar of Christ. The mother of God's quiet witness as the humble and holy reader of God's plan for her life, and by extension for history itself, is a striking yet often implicit insight of Newman's. Perhaps this is why it has been almost entirely overlooked in scholarship. For Newman, Mary was not just an important historical figure. She was, to borrow Jerome Bertram's words, a fully-fledged person firmly lodged in his heart, inspiring and transforming his imagination theological orientation, and philosophical concerns. That noted, Newman's growing devotion to Mary was not always straightforward or easy. As with all things in Newman's life, it can be said that his appreciation for Mary's central place in the life of the church took a long time. In what remains of my talk, I'll consider how Newman's early poetic interests in the relationship between holiness and hiddenness demonstrate how his heart already, already stirred after the Marian, even before he recognized, let alone fully accepted, the mother of God's central and distinctive importance within salvation history. I will then consider how his assessment of Mary's status as model of holiness and patroness of history comes from his idea of history, ideas informed by the devotional examples of the early church fathers, which Newman then thoroughly absorbed as his own. In so doing, I propose that we have to follow a very specific path if we are to gain a fuller sense of Newman's idea of history, and alongside it, his theology of conscience. And this path is as follows, to Jesus through Mary. Um, so this is the second section of my paper, which focuses on the early undergraduate Newman. And um, uh, when I was writing this talk, I wanted to highlight this part because I know there are many undergraduates in this room. So perhaps uh, you can aspire to some of the things Newman did, which was walk around a lot kind of dazed and write poetry. Um, he also studied. Awed by the hidden and flaunting beauties of Oxford alike, the young Newman turned his hand to writing poetry in earnest during his undergraduate years, even co-founding a periodical called The Undergraduate. One of his earliest student poems, Solitude, dates from the 1818 Michaelmas term. In it, the dreamy yet discerning Newman yokes together romantic reverie with a remarkably mature and detached Christian piety therefore serving as an early example of the kind of poetic sensibility that would later characterize Tractarian aesthetics. Solitude was written over a decade before the Oxford, Oxford movement emerged in any straightforward way. There is in stillness often magic power, the 17-year-old wrote, which calms the breast and lowers competing passions. It also serves as an influence through which diviner feelings can arise, leading us to hear the inner or heavenly love, which he says only finds description if we resort to musical analogies. Beauty is a mystic sound for Newman, which breathes such tones only angels can sing and which only solitary saints can hear this side of the veil. 
Only solitary saints, the hidden hearts throughout history, can hear the music clearly for Newman. Variations of this poem's central theme appear and reappear throughout his long life, in his writings and even in his approaches to pastoral ministry. It not only encapsulates his own inclination towards solitude, it also supplies a key to his understanding of the saints, <laughs> providence, and history, an understanding which, as I've already noted, eventually constellates around the Blessed Virgin Mary. Solitude is an early germ, then, of Newman's later and expanded ideas on the role and value of the lives of the saints for our understanding of history. Scholars often turn to uh, the development of doctrine to really flesh this element out, Newman's growing idea of history, but it's already starting to be worked out in his 18-year-old poetry, much of which is a bit preachy and other bits are, are quite good. The solitary saint for Newman is never alone. He or she is in constant communion with God and participates in the renewal of the world through a life dependent on prayer, service, and quiet attunement to the nature of things. Newman's persistent interest in the hidden life deepened throughout his Oxford days, playing a pivotal role in the quasi-monasticism he later lived in the Littlemore community and influencing his adaptations of oratory and congregational life to an expressly English context, a context after he was clothed in the habit of St. Philip. Through these experiences of contemplative solitude within established communities, Newman's views on the nature of the solitary expanded. His early poetic depictions of the lyrical nature of solitude, as seen in his undergrad poetry, became more fully agopic or other-centered and enriched through his eventual subscription to definite doctrines, such as Marian dogma, all of which helped him discern how the solitary soul or poet must, within the Christian economy, confess dependence on God and help from other Christians. Indication of Newman's belief in the value of hiddenness for the transformation of the historical abound. As just one more example, in his characteristically reserved Tractarian poem, The Hidden Ones, published in 1829, um, he says that the secret hearts of the unknown saints are the ones in whom Christ rears his throne so as to transform the world by revivifying what he calls old history and bidding the slow heart dance to prove her power or self in its proud hour. Written as the Oxford movement was taking shape and amassing more followers, the poem serves as a snapshot of Newman's increasingly broadened out and metaphysical vision of history, a vision not unlike Maurice Blondel's view that real history is composed of human lives and human life is metaphysics in act. Newman's turn to Mariology confirms this. It showed Newman that Christian solitude is always already communion in the Christian context. It is constituted by the soul's communication with God and participation in the communion of the saints through the liturgy and the life of the church, which operates within and beyond history itself. As noted earlier on, Newman's Marian devotion began in earnest during his Anglican period, especially through the influence of his friends John Keeble and Richard Hurrell Froud. Around the time that he was appointed vicar to the University Church of St. Mary, Newman especially recalled how Froude's Marian devotion enkindled in him a special love for the Mother of God. He recounts this friendship and says, Froude had a high, severe idea of the intrinsic excellence of virginity, and he considered the Blessed Virgin its great pattern. He fixed deep in me the idea of devotion to the Blessed Virgin. As a result, as I've already noted, uh, Mary becomes a constant focus in his, uh, in his sermons. And this is during a time when, of course, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception was going to be declared in 1854 by Pope Blessed Pius IX. 
As Newman would point out to Edward Pusey, while the church did not pronounce on the Immaculate Conception until the 19th century, it had been traditionally treasured as one of her prerogatives since the doctrines of the church fathers from the earliest times. It was latent, if not uh, expressly declared. He elaborates on this fact in Discourses Addressed to Mixed Congregations, which was published in 1849. Um, and he especially reflects on this in his uh, sermon called On the Fitness of the Glories of Mary. Here he foregrounds the inextricable relationship between the doctrines of the incarnation, the hypostatic union, and the glories of Mary herself. He writes that these Catholic doctrines concerning the Blessed Virgin, particularly the Immaculate Conception and her status as a second Eve, enjoy a special and fitting, quote, harmony with the substance and main outlines of the doctrine of the incarnation. Because they explain how and why Mary uniquely enabled this, the incarnation, and throughout church history communicates the truths of the incarnation through her continual acts of intercession. God chose to rely on the fiat of a young and obscure Nazarene woman in order to accomplish the entrance of Christ into history itself. It is through Mary's status as Dei Para, he says, God's mother, that the historical reality of salvation is actualized. Through Mary, he says, the Almighty is introduced into his own world at a certain time and in a definite way. Dreams are broken and shadows depart. The divine truth, he says, is no longer just a poetic expression or a devotional exaggeration or a mystical economy or a mythical representation. Mary guarantees Christ's historicity. In this, Newman shows that the historical events of the Annunciation and Incarnation together reveal the calling of saints within history itself. And if you look at the early church, any discussion of Mariology in its early form was always tied to the clarification of Christology. Defining Mary's mother of God in the early church helped to further um, talk about the hypostatic union, for instance. Newman also highlights that because of Mary's ascent, the life of Christ cannot be read as one myth among others, thereby implicitly critiquing the rising emphasis on historicism to the strange exclusion of metaphysics, which was developing in the 19th century, in 19th century biblical scholarship and criticism. The Jesus of history is the Christ of God who entered fully into the mundane and ordinary experiences of human life to redeem them. Mary's humble fiat, which allows the incarnation to take place, firmly establishes Jesus' historicity while also testifying to the metaphysical dimensions characterizing the incarnation. Given this, Newman concludes that it is Mary's perfect accord with her unfallen conscience, her immaculate heart, that makes her the greatest human witness to truth throughout history. Mary's glories, the doctrines about her, are therefore fitting, he says, drawing on the patristic and Thomistic tradition of interpreting aspects of revealed truth according to the category of fittingness, um, which is linked to but distinct from the category of necessity. Newman justifies Mary's glories and her role as hermeneutical key to history when he appeals to Christ's own words in scriptures in, in scriptural post-resurrection accounts. Referring to the resurrected Christ's encounter of two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Newman explains that the Lord draws from the category of fittingness to explain the inner coherence between revealed truths. He appeals to the fitness and congruity which existed between this otherwise surprising event of the resurrection and the other truths which had been revealed concerning the divine purpose of saving the world. This great principle of fittingness, which is exemplified so variously in the structure and history of Catholic doctrine, is brought before us, Newman concludes, in the seasons of Marian feasts, when we celebrate the woman who was so singular and special, both in herself, he says, and her relations to him, Christ. 
Mary's singularity lies in her perfect accord with the divine will and, his, and her glories, Newman suggests, are God's honoring of her obedience, an honoring which is in some instances prevenient, prevenient. In the order of history, Mary is immaculately conceived before she makes her fiat. This shows in a hidden yet paradoxically manifest way the metaphysical character of history, Newman suggests. Grace transforms persons and events within and beyond, sometimes even despite, the chronological when divine providence deems it fitting. Newman supplies further justification for the fittingness of Mary's glories and derivatively her special value for history in his sermon, The Reverence Due to the Virgin Mary, which was dedicated to the Feast of the Annunciation. Meditating at length on her canticle of praise, he concludes that her great witness to providence in history is found in her desire to live only insofar as her soul magnifies the Lord. Newman marvels how, through Mary's fiat, God accomplishes, quote, the promise which the world had been looking out for during had been looking out for during thousands of years, and which guarantees that the destinies of the world were be, were to be reversed. He then insists that the Annunciation depends on its historicity for its significance, and shows how the visitation sheds further light on the Annunciation. He drives home this point by focusing on the example Mary sets for future generations through her Magnificat. Mary's Magnificat, which she proclaims in the sight of her cousin Elizabeth, is a priceless treasure, Newman tells his listeners, passed down over the course of history. He therefore would often recommend the Magnificat as a resource for anyone who wished to grow in prayer and to those who pray the divine office. He laments the thoughtlessness of those who do not think of the meaning of those great words, he says, which come from the most highly favored, awfully gifted of the children of men. Newman concludes his sermon on the Annunciation by underscoring the fact that the Magnificat, as a fruit of the Annunciation, not only confirms Mary is doubtless to be accounted blessed and favored in herself, but also indicates the great benefits she has done us as a result of her free choice to become the mother of God. Generation after generation will now enjoy the fruits of the Incarnation. Given this, he proposes humanity owes Mary a great debt of gratitude. The daily rounds of our life, as well as the sufferings and joys chronicled throughout time, take on the shape and direction of definite hope and consolation because Mary assented to the divine will. Instead of sending his son from heaven, Newman says, God sent him forth as a son of Mary to show that all our sorrow and all our corruption can be blessed and changed by him. The very punishment of the fall, the very taint of birth sin, he concludes, admits of a cure by the coming of Christ. And in the quiet solitude of her heart, when Mary discerned the presence and will of God, Newman implies we find a model for history as well as our own place within it. Now, in Newman's gloss on the scriptural accounts of the Annunciation and the Visitation, there exists unsurprising but nevertheless richly illuminating conceptual sympathies between his Mariology and von Balthasar's own. For instance, in Mary for Today, von Balthasar, who knew his Newman, insists that true humility is almost unconscious. It is the very mode or operation of obedient being in the world. And so Mary's humble obedience made her the most singularly unconscious human of all time, he argues. This helps account, he proposes, for Mary's ability to withstand the angel Gabriel's visitation, even as fear arises within her. Typically, the arrival of an angel prompts a fainting spell or something of the kind. But Mary's holy fear, Balthazar suggests, comes from a reluctance to, as it were, enact a certain self-consciousness or self-consideration. She's troubled by the angel's message for various reasons, but partly because she naturally does not think about herself. 
at least in the typical way that we often do. And I'd like to quote um, extensively from von Balthasar here, because I think there's some interesting conceptual sympathies to, to pick out as we then move into the final section of my paper, where I'm going to make some more theoretical claims about the importance of all of this. So this is von Balthasar's uh, reflection on the Annunciation moment. When the girl is greeted as full of grace by the angel, she is afraid. It casts a light on her own essential nature that she has never reflected on. Poverty of spirit, or what is the same, humility, is not some veritable virtue. Capability, suitability, competence is something one can be conscious of. But the unconsidered awareness that everything that one is and has is God's loan and gift and is only there to bring the giver into the spotlight it is only the sinner who twists himself back on to his or her ego. The person who is sinless, the only one there is, does not know this backward glance, but looks steadfastly forward at what is good, and no one is good but God alone. It is precisely this lack of knowledge, von Balthasar says, about her own sinlessness that makes Mary the seat of wisdom. Wisdom is not something one possesses, but a radiant light from God. Its light is given as their own to the poor and humble. This is why Mary can only point to Jesus, just as Jesus can only point to the Father. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. The fittingness of Mary's glories comes from her radical purity and poverty, as Balthazar shows us so persuasively, and which Christ proclaims in his adage, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Alongside the patristic interpretation of this very passage as inspiration, Newman also often concluded that greater than her status as biological mother of Christ is Mary's perfect obedience to the divine plan for salvation, her ability to keep God's word and ponder it. In all this, we see that in his turn towards Mariology and Marian devotion, Newman discovered a deeply personal and metaphysical articulation of the inner depth dimensions of history. As importantly, he apprehended how the solitude he romanticized in his undergraduate days was, as he had intuited even then, indicated of a deeper understanding of the self in relation to God, others, and the passage of time. As he recounts in the Apologia, this deeper sense of the self is more fully known through the spiritual friendship enjoyed within the communion of saints and facilitated through the often hidden intercession of God's mother. In the final section of this talk, I will consider the degree to which Newman's approaches to Mariology offers ways of thinking about not just the value of the historical, but also of devotional sensibility. According to Newman, history is rarely understood, let alone correctly interpreted, without great care and contemplation over long periods of time. Like Mary, we must ponder history in our hearts, he says. It would take a holy prophet, a saint close to God, a divinely inspired poet, he argues, to discern the patterns of events and their significances in real time. However, he argues that it is nonetheless incumbent upon historians and especially theologians to seek to interpret the past in light of the present, to see how the known parts of history hang together and testify to the presence of God who operates within and beyond them. Writing for the British critic in 1841, Newman laments what he viewed as the lack of a systematic historical study of church history in the Anglican church. Perhaps the greatest of wants under which our religious literature labors at this day is that of, an, of a sufficient ecclesiastical history, he writes. He argues that Christian doctrine and history uniquely inform each other, showing the providences of God towards his church. Our view of doctrine affects our view of history, he argues, and our view of history, our view of doctrine, and our view of doctrine, the sense we put upon scripture. 
After justifying the associations between history and faith, between lived experience and divine revelation, Newman considers what is involved in the challenge of interpreting the present in light of the past. And this is what he says. The history of the past ends in the present, and the present is our scene of trial. And to behave ourselves towards its various phenomena duly and religiously, we must understand them. And to understand them, we must have recourse to those past events which led to them. It is the association between past and present, which is everything. But to those who know not the true history of that to which the name or event or idea belongs, there are no associations with it or only wrong ones. As he proceeds to assess how the study of history can serve theological concerns, Newman makes it clear that any such assessment should be primarily made for the sake of religious duty to aid us in what he calls behaving ourselves. <laughs> This claim is brought to an even greater pitch in development of doctrine, which Newman was completing when he uh, published this essay on history in the British Critic. As we all well know, I think, the overview of church history Newman undertakes in development helped confirm his decision to be received into the Roman Catholic Church in 1845, the same year development was published. This is just one indicative example of the seriousness with which Newman understood the study of history because he said it could profoundly transform and change your religious convictions and the devotional sensibility itself. Another example of the way in which Newman found history to be of vital importance was the way in which he discovered the role and the function of Mary within history by uh, reading the church fathers and reading deeply into history. In his chapter in development um, on the office of St. Mary, in which he says Mary's special prerogatives are intimately involved in the doctrine of the incarnation itself, Newman quotes extensively from St. Irenaeus' declaration that Mary is a second Eve. In so doing, he meditates on how Mary's fiat is used by providence to begin to redress the wounds of history caused by the fall in Genesis. According to Irenaeus, just as Eve, as Irenaeus says, was seduced by the angel's speech, so as to flee God, having transgressed his word, so also Mary, by an angel's speech, was evangelized, so as to contain God, being obedient to his word. Irenaeus extends the parallel even further. And as one was seduced to flee God, so the other was persuaded to obey God, that the Virgin Mary might become the advocate, the paraclete of the Virgin Eve, that as mankind had been bound to death through a virgin, through a virgin it may be saved." Piling reference upon reference and authority upon authority, Newman draws from Irenaeus and other early theologians, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Gregory of Nyssa, to confirm Mary's high office and her interventions in history, so as to sustain the hopes and goodness of humanity under trial. He is clearly fascinated by Irenaeus's description of Mary as an advocate, a paraclete for Eve and by extension for humanity throughout the unfolding drama of history. Additionally, Newman pulls from devotional accounts of Mary's interventions in the early church to further his cause in highlighting Mary's role within history. In this instance, his primary motiva motivation is to instruct or educate, but, import but an important derivative of his choice to appeal to devotional accounts from the early church is to show the value of the poetically imaginative within historical accounts and theological considerations of the life, nature, and scope of the Christian church. One such striking example of Newman's use of poetic accounts in the development of doctrine is his extensive assessment of a third century record of a Marian apparition. And this is interesting because for those of you who have read development, while Newman does occasionally draw from more poetic or devotional texts, he is um, more assessing rather systematically um, the early theological texts of the church in order to get an account of the development of uh, church history. 
He claims that the mystic accounts of Marian apparitions can serve as cultural confirmations of Mary's interposition, as he calls it, in history. While the evocative language of the record clearly strikes a chord with Newman, he analyzes the text systematically too, defending the historicity of the recorded vision. To justify his turn to a devotional text, as opposed to a theological treatise, Newman appeals to the authority and credibility of the story's witnesses. In this instance, they are St. Gregory of Nyssa himself, who is the historian of the apparition, and Bishop Thermaturgus, also known as Gregory the Miracle Worker, of Neo-Caesarea, who was the subject of this mystical encounter. Tradition and ecclesial authority legitimize the historicity of the story, Newman concludes, as do the fruits of the apparition itself, namely the clarification of the Trinitarian formula in the Nicene period, which was spanned roughly um, 100 to 325 AD. However, in seeing Newman's treatment of the account of this vision, which I'm about to talk about, it becomes clear that the account is also important to him because a poetic approach to church history can open up deeper affective appreciations, appreciations which cannot, which cannot be so fully supplied by any other means or through any other mode. It is worth quoting a few snippets from the apparition account as they illuminate Newman's conviction that Mary is not only a divinely chosen and special instrument of divine providence throughout history, she also illumines understanding by appealing to reason as well as the heart. She is the philosopher um, par excellence for Newman. The account begins with Thermaturgus passing the night in prayer when one appeared, as the account says, as if in human form, aged in appearance and saintly. This venerable figure is Christ's beloved apostle, St. John the Evangelist. John calms the frightened bishop who is amazed at the sight and filled with attending perturbation. John assures the bishop with a gentle voice, saying he has appeared by divine command in order that the truth of the Orthodox faith might be revealed to him. As John assures the bishop, filling him with courage, a still more sublime figure appears on the scene. The bishop cannot bear the sight of the mother of God and struggles to explain her in words. So he settles on the inadequate description of a figure in shape of a woman, but more than human, it seemed. This figure turns out to be God's mother. While gazing at these two figures, the bishop overhears a theological discourse between them. It becomes evident that John is only able to pronounce the correct Trinitarian creed and formula once the mother of the Lord has instructed him. Here, Mary is the primary philosopher or theologian and John her receptive student. As spouse of the Holy Spirit and seat of wisdom, she is the one who gives John the correct way to offer a formulary well-turned and complete before both saints vanish from the bishop's sight. The apparition ends and Thermaturgus records the Trinitarian formula and incorporates it into his preaching, offering it, as Newman says, as a gift to history, to posterity, as an inheritance of heavenly teaching, which aids the doctrinal clarification concerning the Trinity, which was needed at the time. Pondering the elements of this account, Newman concludes that by using the words of Gregory of Nyssa, the historian of this vision, Mary is shown to be history's paraclete, a loving mother with clients throughout history. Influenced by Gregory's writings and other early mystical poems, hymns, and treatises on the mother of God, Newman came to see her according to her role in Thermaturgus's vision, history's clearest icon of Christ's redemption of humanity. She will show you her son, your God and your all, Newman would later preach. Mary's status as patron of history is one which especially captured Newman's devotional imagination, informing his philosophical and theological reflections on the place and value of hidden holiness in the outworking of providence through time. As I've been discussing, this is evident when Newman discusses articles of Christian doctrine. 
But just as importantly, his idea of history and aesthetics are also shaped by his belief that Marian doctrine held a special place in not just church history, but also English history and English self-understanding. Although this Marian element in English culture was disturbed and displaced during the Reformation, Newman believed it needed to be publicly reestablished if Roman Catholics were to help pave the way for the church's fuller restoration in Victorian Britain and afterwards. In his seminal 1852 sermon, The Second Spring, delivered on the occasion of the restitution of the Roman Catholic hierarchy in England, Newman transposes verses from the Song of Solomon as he petitions Mary to resume her patronage of England. It is the time for thy visitation. Arise, Mary, and go forth in thy strength into that north country, which once was thine own, and take possession of a land, he prays, which knows thee not. Arise, Mother of God, and with thy thrilling voice speak to those who labor with child and are in pain, till the babe of grace leaps within them. Shine on us, dear lady, with thy bright countenance. His desire for England's return to devotion to God's mother is earnestly expressed in his letter to Pusey, as well as the Marian hymns and devotions he wrote during decades of pastoral service as a priest. Shortly after founding the first oratory of St. Philip in England, Newman wrote a series of Marian hymns. One of them, completed in 1849 and called The Pilgrim Queen, draws from the medieval understanding that England is Mary's dowry. The Pilgrim Queen, as a hymn, focuses on Mary's pain as she learns that Christ is missing from his tomb. However, it also clearly doubles as a commentary on the gradual and somewhat uneven abandonment of Marian devotion in England following on from the Reformation. I say uneven because historians and um, scholars of material culture have increasingly shown that in various pockets of Britain, um, many people still prayed the rosary well until the, into the 17th, 18th centuries, even though they often had to do this in private. In the opening stanzas of the hymn, Mary is described as a sweetly singing queen who nevertheless sits desolate and alone. She cries out that robbers have rifled her garden and store, that they have justified their violence by telling her that they can keep Christ far better than she ever could. Her lamentation is resolved by the hymn's close when she proclaims the reality of the resurrection and Christ's raising of the dead. A moment, she says, and the dead shall revive. The giants are failing. The saints are alive. I am coming to rescue my home and my reign, and Peter and Philip are close in my train. Prayer and the obedience of saints paradoxically overcomes history and transforms it. Prayer is within and beyond history. The final lines of the poem are not just a reminder of the resurrection as the ground of hope and the promise of Christ's return in the second coming. It is a prophecy concerning the return of Mary to the heart of England, which hints that this return is inaugurated in Newman's own time, and especially because of the oratorians. Newman's poem employs the rhythmic patterns and images of medieval expressly English verse and links the Englishness, as it were, of his poetics to an expressly Romish or Roman devotional attitude. He associates the Roman saints, Peter, we know the first Pope and apostle of Rome, with St. Philip, the founder of the Oratorian congregation, who was also known as the second apostle to Rome. And he unites these two with God's mother in a very specific way. In so doing, he proclaims in verse the belief that the Roman Catholic revival in Victorian England will be aided through the apostolate of the congregation of the Oratory of St. Philip in England, Mary's dowry. Newman surely bore all this in mind when he initially founded the first English-speaking oratory in what is now Old Oscott House, um, which he renamed Maryvale. Um, and he also took the name Mary for his confirmation um, name when he was also uh, confirmed in Old Oscott House. 
Of course, prophesying the return of public marrying devotion to England's shores is not unique to Newman. It almost became an overdone trope for Victorian Roman Catholics, especially converts to Catholicism, who often felt displaced, not to mention marginalized. The Jesuit poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, whom Newman received into the church, also often turned to this theme in his poetry, as seen in the final lines of his remarkable epic, The Wreck of the Deutschland, in which he prays that Christ, whom he calls the miracle in Mary of flame, will come back, oh, upon English souls. However, few 19th century Roman Catholic poets or theologians were as persistent as Newman in his belief that the revival of Marian devotion was crucial to the restoration of the religious sense in public life and to the renewal of history in the 19th century context. He frequently wrote and preached on this theme, but in devotional poems like The Pilgrim Queen, we discern an emotional depth, even urgency, which can only be conveyed in the poetic register, only through the power of poetic form itself. The cadences he selects, which often possess uh, echoes of older English verse styles, and the affective atmosphere he creates cooperate to show the effects of Marian devotion and its loss on not only the Christian heart, but Mary's own. In this instance, poetry is no longer at the service of the didactic or catechetical. Newman sometimes preaches too much in his verse. Instead, it reaches the quality of the psalmic, instructing readers through the emotive power it evinces. In The Pilgrim Queen, then, we see how Newman's poetic sensibilities and theological concerns converge, mutually enriching each other as he sought to discern and redress what he viewed as the spiritual wounds of his specific time and context and country. In this way, it becomes clear that for Newman, poetry and articles of doctrine can both be in the service of broader, clearer understandings of the operations of providence in history, it is clear in his writings that he understands Mary's special patronage of history to be, at one level, the act of pondering all human events in light of her son and bringing them before him. Mary stands athwart history saying, do whatever he tells you. Newman only rarely expands upon this view through the modes and methods of philosophical systemization. Instead, he continually suggests, implies, or infers it in a meditative mode, showing us the degree to which his own estimations of the interpenetrations between belief doctrine, history, are most fully revealed in a posture of prayer and reflection, a posture best patterned according to the Marian example. She pondered these things in her heart. Newman's reserved, pondering, devotional approach to history, daily life and devotion, is saturated by Mary. While he could be a remarkably systematic thinker, think only of grammar of ascent or even idea of a university, he himself would remark that some of his best writing was decidedly intuitive, or as he notes in Rise and Progress, immethodical or meditative. As Michael Hurley has recently noted, for Newman, the immethodical follows a certain logic of thinking out into and through language and experience. It's a kind of pondering that may reflect itself in the systematic register as needed, but in other registers too, depending on which form or genre best accords with the nature of the thing being discussed. Whenever he approaches Marian themes, Newman seems to feel the urge to be as devotional as he is philosophic, as poetic as he is systematic as tender as he is analytical. Indeed, he blurs the boundaries between these modes, showing their inner depths and potential interrelatedness. Near the opening of development, for instance, he writes that the systematic study of history and any systematic mode of thought itself is always already a response to a set of ideas or ide ideating. The systematic response is the reason's desire to catch up with the pondering intellect and with the attentive heart. Commenting on the process of the development of ideas, Newman writes the following. 
It is the characteristic of our minds to be ever engaged in passing judgment on the things which come before us. No sooner do we apprehend them, we judge. We allow nothing to stand by itself. We compare, contrast, abstract, generalize, connect, adjust, classify, and we view all our knowledge in the associations with which these processes have invested it. In this process of discerning, weighing, comparing, and contrasting, we discover the relations between things. We learn whether, whether our appraisals are fair, consistent, and with or without good reason, Newman concludes. In this process of developing ideas about the truth of things, Newman discerns and marry the philosophical pattern. Recall how closely Newman's description of ideation parallels his earlier description that I quoted of Mary pondering all things in her heart in his Oxford sermon on the Feast of the Purification. She believes in order to understand, to adapt Augustine's adage, and then ponders or seeks further understanding in order to honor this belief, this assent to the divine plan. This is why I think it's more fitting to call Newman's Marian approach to history an idea and not a set out philosophy per se. It is by turns devotional, exegetical, systematized, private, public, and instructive, even footnoted. It draws from rumination, analogy, reflection, and prayer. Newman draws out Marian themes in an effort to discern his own times and how they stand in relation to the church's past and its needs in the present and near future. In this way, he prophetically offers us an approach to Christian faith along Marian lines, which would come to characterize the conciliar theology of Vatican II itself, which, as Ratzinger points out, sought to further articulate how Mary's status as mother of God witnesses to the, quote, scriptural narration of the history of God's saving dealings with humanity on the one hand, and on the other, the ultimate personal concretization of the church, since through Mary's fiat, the deepest spiritual content of the covenant that God intended with Israel is confirmed as factum, that is, historical facts, and mysterium facti, that is, the theological senses or facts offering the historical dimensions its deepest meaning. I think it's no small thing that Newman's idea of history as Marian, as the often hidden unfolding of providence offstage, not only counteracted the growing turn to power, power politics in 19th century political thought, it also beautifully chimes with the spirit of Lourdes and forecasts Fatima, offering a meditative response to the violence of the 20th century, which, even as it proclaimed the non-surveum or non-fiat, has known more hidden fiat and martyrs, examples of quiet contemplation and holiness, than many of history's previous centuries combined. Rather than define history as a march of linear progression, which is the conceit of scientific positivism championed in the late 19th century and into the 20th, Newman understood history as a processual movement towards a deeper understanding of the action of God with and among, but also beyond his creation. And in stark contrast to the historical theories of power politics, which shaped late, late modernity or the modern humanism, which Henri de Lubac called the claims of resentment, Newman offers a philosophy of history rooted in prayer and hiddenness, stemming from Christ's humble and sometimes obscure redemptive work, which Mary, as the mother of God, uniquely supported and made known through history for, as he would call it, the sake of her son. Like Augustine, Newman held that history's ultimate significance lies well beyond the rise and fall of civilizations. Um, but unlike Augustine, I think Newman blurs the distinction between the, the city of God and the city of man in some interesting ways. And perhaps we can talk about that in the question period. Newman discerned that the true heart of history beats within the relationship between persons and God and in, and in the extension of these private relations through life of friendship and what he would call definite concrete service. It is in searching the conscience that, according to Newman, the heart and mind are opened up to the transcendent horizons 
granted by divine revelation and made manifest firstly in Christ's life and secondarily in the lives of the saints, which he envisions as the remnant fruit of largely scattered grace who are gathered together under the special hidden protection of God's mother, history's paraclete. Thank you.